Welcome to the Central Community Church Podcast. We exist to be authentic followers of Jesus, leading others to follow Him by loving God, loving people, and serving our world. Like Tyson said, we want to welcome you here if you've never been here before. A huge welcome to you. We're so glad you came. Hope you feel welcomed this morning. I am going to right now make, in my experience, the most awkward transition um, I've ever had to make as a pastor from beautiful children's production to adultery and murder, which is kind of where we're going this morning. So um, no real smooth transition to that. We're just going to just kind of go. So um, if you're wondering what on earth is going on, why would that be, uh, you know, on the dawn of Christmas where we're going? Well, to get you up to speed, if you're newer to Central, haven't been here in recent weeks, here's what we've been doing. We've been looking at this genealogy in Matthew's gospel, the first book in the New Testament. There's this genealogy. If you've ever tried to read through the Bible in a year on some Bible reading plan or you've just given it a go a few times, read through the Bible, occasionally you come across these genealogies. And if you're anything like me, you think, okay, here we go. Next 15 minutes of my life, I am going to be butchering Hebrew name after Hebrew name after Hebrew name. But there it is, and off we go. And so that's what's going on in Matthew chapter 1. But what we've been saying this Advent season, the weeks leading up to Christmas, is there is a gospel treasure in the genealogy of Jesus found in Matthew chapter 1. And what that gospel treasure is is that in this line, this patrilineal line of father, son, father, son, father, son, for generations are the names of five women. And, and this gospel treasure exists that every single time a woman's name is mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus, it's meant to fix our thoughts to the story of what happened there over and over again. And so we recognize that even in the line with which Jesus came from was the need for the gospel was the need of rescue, was the need for a savior. And we come across one again. I'll show it to you in Matthew chapter 1, verse 6. Here's what it says. After it talks about Sam and the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David, it says in verse 6, was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Interesting, right? Why does it say that? I want you to know uh, as we get going here that it wasn't meant to be a slight. It wasn't meant to be an insult by Matthew to not name Bathsheba. There are five women listed in the genealogy of Jesus, but Bathsheba is the only one not called by name. She is referred to as the wife of Uriah. But let me tell you, it's not meant to be an insult to Bathsheba. It's an indictment on David. David had Solomon by the wife of Uriah. It's meant to make us fix our gaze back on a passage in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. It's in the Old Testament. It comes shortly after the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. We're going to land there, 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. And uh, uh, we won't read it all this morning, but you're welcome to read it later on. It's a fascinating story. I'm surprised a major motion picture by Mel Gibson hasn't been done on David and this story yet. I'm sure it's coming. Give him enough time. But, uh, but th- let me get you up to speed on what this story is about David and the wife of Uriah. It says in 2 Samuel chapter 11, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. 
And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. To get you up to speed, what's been going on is David has been an excellent king so far and has been extremely blessed by God. He's the giant slayer. And he became the king of Israel, the best king of Israel, and everything has been going well. And the Ammonites come along and they um, want to take on Israel, and Israel are ready to just obliterate them. So that's what's going on here. It happened late one afternoon when David wasn't out to battle, but he remained in Jerusalem. When David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the, king, roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. The Bible rarely does this. It says how attractive somebody was in the Bible. It does that here. Bathsheba must have been absolutely stunning. Saw a woman bathing on the roof, and she was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. That's the Bible's way of saying that they slept together. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So we'll talk more about what's happened here thus far, but let me just pick up the rest of the story. Now David finds himself in a predicament he wasn't anticipating, so he calls for Uriah, who's on the battlefield, to be sent back to Jerusalem, and he just pretends, well, I'll get an update from him. How's Joab doing? How are the troops? How's the battle going? Give me an update. And Uriah does that. He comes back to Jerusalem and gives that update. And then David says to him, you know what? Why don't you go down to your house, wash yourself, go be with your wife, and then get back out there on the, on the, on the battlefield. And Uriah, this upright man, actually, he's one of David's mighty men. It's like he's one of his Navy SEALs. He's one of his best fighting men. And Uriah, as one of David's best, says, how could I do that? I can't go down to my house. All the other men, all the other soldiers are out on the battlefield sleeping in tents, risking their lives. You want me to go home and wash up and sleep with my wife? I'm not doing that. So he slept outside the palace doors that night. The next morning, David says, okay, Uriah, stay one more night and I'll send you back tomorrow. And Uriah, of course, agrees with the king and David feeds him a wonderful meal and gives him a drink. Sees that the cup's getting empty, feeds him, gives him another drink, gives him another drink, gives him another drink. Maybe this righteous man will do something, you know, all of his inhibitions will be left and he'll just go back down to his house. He hasn't seen his wife in a long time, right? So maybe, maybe a little bit of alcohol will get that going. And so David is just going from one sin to the other and he's just pushing this guy. Well, it backfires because Uriah passes out on David's couch and that's that. So the next morning, he is now desperate, and so he writes a note to Joab and says, put Uriah at the front lines and then fall back. Leave him out there. Make sure he dies. Seals it, hands it to Uriah, his own death sentence, and says, take this to Joab. Uriah goes back to the front of the battlefield, reads it to Joab. Joab does, does just that. He sends a squadron of men up to the most dangerous part of the war, at the most dangerous point in the battle, and then all of the other army fall back. Now, typically, maybe if you've heard this story before, you think David slept with Uriah's wife Bathsheba and killed Uriah. Yes, all of that is true. In all likelihood, he killed at least another dozen or two other men who were a part of this little troop with Uriah who were left to themselves as everybody else in the army fell back according to David's orders, and they were slaughtered there. 
David at this point, when he gets word that Uriah has been killed, I think truly believes that he's gotten away with it. The perfect crime. And he buries it in his heart. But at the end of 2 Samuel 11, here's what it said. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. David thought he had gotten away with it, could keep it to himself. But the writer of 2 Samuel makes it extremely clear. It displeased God. It displeased God. Now, we will move on to chapter 12 in a moment, but, but there is a paradigm for temptation and sin in this text that you and I can look at that, sure, for many of us, maybe it's not adultery and murder, but it is nonetheless a paradigm for all temptation and sin. And we see three things in this text that um, lead David to this circumstance and ultimately lead us all to the same destination. The first paradigm for temptation and sin in this text is a false sense of self-sufficiency. David, everything has gone well for David. Everything's gone well. And you know what we typically do when things go well? Like, yay me, pat yourself on the back, right? Like, I'm doing great. Life is great. Wow, I'm a good person. That's what we typically do, all of us, David included. That's what we do when things go well. We have this false sense of self-sufficiency. But Proverbs 16, 18 warns us, pride comes before the fall. So watch out. Pride comes before the fall. See, the danger in blessing is that we tend to forget how dependent we are on God. When things go well, we don't think that we are so dependent on him. I I quoted from Memoir of a Cutter a few weeks ago where the writer said, I knew there had to be a God because I kept blaming him for everything. Don't have to be a Christian to do this. Humanity in general do this. Things go bad. Ultimately, we point our fingers at God and say, what are you doing to me? When things go bad, we look to God and say, why are you screwing this up? Why are you messing my life up so much? But when things are going well, Christians included, you know what we typically do? All right. I'm good at this. I'm doing well. And the more self-sufficient we feel, the closer we are to disaster. In Proverbs 30 Uh, The writer says, give me neither poverty nor riches. This is the prayer. It's an interesting prayer, isn't it? Give me neither poverty nor riches. In an age when you know what people want to be when they grow up more than anything else? Simply famous. (laughs) They want to be famous. They want to be rich and famous. That's the goal. But you know what the proverb prayer is? Give me neither poverty nor riches. Because if I'm too poor, you know what I'll do? I might have to steal to survive. But give me not riches for this reason. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Because you know what the human heart tends to do when things go well? I don't need God. I've got this. So don't give me those riches. That's what Jesus does in, in the prayer in Matthew 6 when he teaches us to pray. Give us this day, our daily bread. Give us what we need today, each day, so that we can praise God for daily supply. But when we get so much, what often happens is we forget that he is the provider of all things. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 puts it this way, so whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. It's the false sense of self-sufficiency. Secondly, what we see about David in this paradigm for temptation and sin is that he was bored and on the sidelines. Verse 1 of chapter 11 is quite the indictment. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle... David was on vacation. David was on the sidelines and he was bored. 
Listen, the way, one of the ways to successfully resist the sin crouching at your door in your life is to be busy with a higher purpose. To be busy in God-glorifying living. Every Christian, every person that God has made, all of us, are created to bring glory to God with our lives. And once we catch that, once our lives belong to Jesus Christ, we take on this kind of life that has more meaning, more depth. It's all about this kingdom of God. Wherever we see even a hint of brokenness, there the Christian goes to try and bring healing and restoration and reconciliation. What better, what higher purpose is there in life, but you know where we can get sidetracked is where we don't live in that kind of meaning, that kind of higher purpose. One author put it this way, for many people, their lives are so empty, so pointless, so devoid of something more. It's not always that sin is incredibly alluring. It's often that we're so unbelievably bored. See, the second piece in the paradigm for temptation and sin is that we're not living according to the purpose that God has made us for. Far too many of us, likely in this room, are just bored. And on the sidelines of what we were created to do in God-glorifying living and serving our homes and serving our churches, right, and serving the community in living for God's glory, Far, far too many of us are on the sidelines. See, God created us, Ephesians 6 talks about this, to be engaged in a spiritual battle. I heard one put it this way. You know what it would have been really tough for David to do? To have his pants down when he was in the middle of a war. It's pretty tricky. But he was bored and on the sidelines, and he found it a lot easier. See, David would have found it a lot more difficult to sleep with Bathsheba if he had been 50 miles away in the battle. And Ephesians 6 tells us that we are a part of a spiritual battle, and yet many of us are bored and on the sidelines. And it's a paradigm, part of the paradigm for temptation and sin. Thirdly, in the paradigm for temptation and sin, David put himself in temptation's path. See, the way that it would have worked, uh, I stood there actually in Jerusalem where David's palace once was, and it was at the top of the hill. And David would have had a rooftop patio, and he stood at the top and all of the other houses in the kingdom fell, just worked their way down the hill. So David had the best view. And he had a view where people would go up to the rooftop and do all sorts of things, including bathing. And there he is at the top. And he can just look down and people watch. So I don't know if it's a coincidence if David knew that, that a beautiful woman like Bathsheba might be bathing at this time. But he's definitely not at the battle where he's supposed to be as a king. He's at home. And then now he's just wandering around, looking around. He puts himself right in temptation's path. And so many of us do this, don't we? We, we, we know what we might see with our eyes. We, we know where we're going and what it might lead to for many of us. And we just, we put ourselves in temptation's path. I think I'm strong enough. We do what David did. In fact, David, like many of us, was given opportunities to come to his senses. Do you see what it says in verse 3? Is not this Bathsheba you're, you're calling about? Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam? Is this not the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? Is this who you're calling for that you want to sleep with, that you want us to bring to you? Is it, isn't this someone's daughter? Isn't this someone's wife? And yet his desire, because he had been feeling this false sense of self-sufficiency, had been bored and on the sidelines and put himself in temptation's path. There he was, and there was no turning back for him. My wife, Emily, had a boyfriend many years ago, 
I asked permission for this story. It's one of those you need to do. <laughs> and uh, supposedly, um, her boyfriend was giving her a kiss goodnight. I didn't ask for any more details than that. That was more than enough. But here's the rest of the story. At one point, Emily's looking at him, and his eyes just all of a sudden are bulging, like out of his head. Emily like, looks, looks puzzled and turns around, and Emily's dad's standing behind her in his underwear, holding a gun. <laughs> and she sees it, and then she looks back, and the guy is gone. <laughs> like, he's just gone. And I say, good riddance, buddy. Good. <laughs> But now that's my father-in-law, so, you know, there it is. Um, but see, what happened in that moment, in temptation's path, is he found a desire that was greater than his desire for her, his desire to live. <laughs> but see, what happens for the Christian in these kinds of circumstances, maybe not exactly like that, but, you know, circumstances in general, we're in temptation's path. See, there is a desire for every Christian that is always greater um, the, the, uh, the, the Puritans, Thomas Chalmers specifically, had a sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection, saying you can't just will yourself not to be tempted and not to give into it. You can't do it. We fail at this over and over and over again. But what we need to do is have an affection that's even greater than this one of sin. Fill in the blank, whatever it might be, whatever might tempt you to fall into sin, there is a desire that can be above it that sees the glory of Jesus Christ and all that he's done and all who he is that puts it in his place. My will to live is greater than my passion here in this temptation and sin. Every Christian can know that when our affections for Jesus increase, they put sin in its proper perspective and we see it for what it is. Now we move on to 2 Samuel 12, where we see that sin is a plague that destroys. And the way that we see this plague that comes along that destroys is through a prophet named Nathan. Now, I have a couple accountability partners in my life, a couple guys I meet with regularly, and one of them truly has the, a, a prophetic gift. He has approached people at certain times and said, hey, is this going on in your life? And they're like, what? How did you know? It's a good kind of accountability partner to have, because I'm like, I, either I'll say it or you'll stare at me and tell it to me, and I'd rather just tell it to you. So that's the kind of person that Nathan is in this story. Nathan approaches David and says, hey, David, I want to tell you a story. And David gets enraptured in the story that Nathan tells him. And this is what happens in 2 Samuel 12. Nathan tells a story and says there's this really rich guy. And he has flocks and herds of sheep. He has tons of sheep. And then there's a poor guy who uses the little money he has to buy one ewe lamb, one little female lamb. That's all he has. He's put his money into buying this one lamb. It's all he's got. And then it gets a little bit weird where he raised it like a daughter and, and that kind of thing with his kids and let the little ewe lamb literally eat off his plate and drink from his cup and he held it in his arms regularly. It says all this. It's kind of, we all know dog lovers like this, right? So it's kind of the equivalent. Are you really letting the dog lick the remnants of that food from your mouth? Okay, you know, each to their own. That's cool. Yep. But that's essentially what's going on with this, this poor man and his ewe lamb is he's got this one and it's like a child to him. Well, the rich man has some guests come kind of unexpectedly, it seems, from out of town and he needs to prepare them a meal. And he thinks, well, I don't want to, I've got all my flocks and herds, but I don't want to take one of mine. And he looks over at the poor man, the man who there's nothing he can do. He's powerless. So he takes that man's one ewe lamb that's like a daughter to him, kills it, cooks it, serves it. And David is just 
stunned by the story. And in chapter 12, verse 5 says, as the Lord lives, this is David responding to Nathan telling the story, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he's done this thing and because he had no pity. And then Nathan, Nathan the prophet looks him square in the face and says, you are the man. You're the man. And what's so fascinating about this is that David, in an instant, this, the sin he's hidden. Listen, at the end of chapter 11, it says that um, Bathsheba bears him a son. So in those days, it took nine months between conception and baby being born. And, and that's what I've discovered in my study here. And so at least, you know... Uh, Likely a year has passed, and now we're into chapter 12, and so this scenario is going on. And, um, and so time has passed, and David has buried it. But when Nathan looks him square in the face and says, you're the man, it, it just convicts him to the core. And he responds in verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. There's no excuses. There's no more hiding. There's no more anything but to say what's true. I've sinned against God. And Nathan, right after, said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. He confesses his sin, and Nathan says, you're covered by grace. What's so fascinating is that David, when he responds to Nathan's story, says he should pay and he should die. But when he realizes that he's the sinner and he repents, Nathan's response is, the Lord has also put away your sin. There's nothing left to pay, and you shall not die. You don't need to die. Now, I want to make a note here. God isn't simply sweeping sin under the rug. He's pressing pause on judgment. He's not sweeping it under the rug. He's pressing pause on judgment. And you know when he's going to push play again? When Jesus is hanging on the cross and says, that thing, I didn't sweep it under the rug. I said, I said, listen, it's, I've put it away, but he's put it away in his son, Jesus Christ, who did pay the penalty of death so that David wouldn't have to, so that God could come to him compassionately and say, the Lord's put away your sin and you shall not die because I'm putting it upon my son, Jesus Christ. I've heard this said before, and it's spot on. If you cover your sin, Jesus will expose it. But if you expose your sin, Jesus will cover it. This is what we need to know about when people, we're all sinners. The question isn't, do you sin? The question is, what do you do after you sin? See, if you cover your sin, Jesus will expose it in judgment. It will come out. But if you expose your sin in repentance, Jesus will cover it in grace. Now, I want to take one quick aside and say this. There's a difference between forgiveness and consequences, and we just need to know that. Sometimes we think, well, what forgiveness means is you need to forget what I did, consequences and all. But David's a prime example of that not being the case. He murdered a guy. And look, a family might come to the place where they can forgive a person for murdering their loved one, but that doesn't mean there's not a lifetime sentence to go along with it. See, God forgives completely. But there are ramifications. There are very real consequences that come. This first son that Bathsheba and David have together dies. David has another daughter who gets raped, kind of on his watch. He should have known better, protected better. 
He has another son who kills one of his sons, again on his watch. He should have seen it coming. See, the sin that's plagued him in his life wreaks havoc on his family. There are consequences, and David feels them mightily. Consequences exist, and yet forgiveness is full as well. Jesus forgives completely, but there's a great consequence over and above them all, and that consequence was the cross. So that God could forgive you, the cross needed to take place. There are great consequences to sin, but there is true, full forgiveness nonetheless. And David here, what I appreciate about him in the midst of 2 Samuel 12, is that David had had to this point had hidden sin in his life, but when he, he, he was finally called on it, he didn't hide it any longer. He didn't start to rationalize it to Nathan. Oh, it's not that bad. Or I can't help it. My desires are too strong, right? Or I, I didn't do anything any other king wouldn't do. He doesn't rationalize it. And he didn't shift the blame to others. It's not my fault. Or you don't know what's been done to me. Or why was she out there looking so provocative? Like, what am I supposed to? It's her fault, right? Like, no, he doesn't pass the blame. He doesn't rationalize it, and he hides it no more. He confesses, I've sinned against the Lord. He just flat out says it. He acknowledged his sin, and we need to hear that. Some of us don't do this. We hide sin and pretend it doesn't exist, or we rationalize sin and think we can justify the validity of it, and we pin the blame for our sins on others, and some of us don't even think the concept of sin is legit. Oh, that's just for people that are soft and need to do something with their guilty consciences. But of course this concept of sin exists. Of course it does. We all recognize this in the legal system. Murder is wrong. But even beyond the legal system, we would, we would all say, yeah, adultery is wrong. Murder, wrong. Like, these things are wrong. And so we have some level of that. And what the Bible calls wrong is sin. And so then we leave it to our crooked hearts to be the ones who can say what's right and what's wrong. But that's not what we do in the church. In the church, what we do is we look to the Word of God and say, God determines in total purity what is true and what is false, what is sin, what is right and what is wrong. And so we're discovering here again that there are some very dark sins in David's heart and in his life. But what we, and, and we can hopefully, I think we all relate to that. But what we also see of David, and we should take hold of, is the fact that when he is called on it, he does truly repent. When it is exposed, he repents of it. He wrote Psalm 51 in light of what happened in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. It says, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba, he writes this, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. I've always been sinful, he declares. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let, my, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. 
Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. What a cry. What a prayer. What a heart of repentance that David expresses here. There's probably only one confusing line for us in what I just read. Purge me with hyssop? What is that? Uh, hyssop was a plant with a stem on it. Think of it kind of like a paintbrush on a pole. You could dip things in it and kind of use it. It was a long plant in Egypt and Palestine that had, uh, could, 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 take, um, could be used for different things. And so it's only mentioned two other times in the Bible, this hyssop plant. One of the times, the first time it's mentioned, is in Exodus in the story of the Jews where they were supposed to dip hyssop in lamb's blood and spread that blood on the doorposts. It's the first Passover so that their firstborn sons would be spared and there would not be death. If they took the hyssop plant and dipped it in lamb's blood and wiped it on the doorposts, they would be spared. And once it was used as a means of cleansing leprosy. These are the only two instances other than Psalm 51 where hyssop is mentioned. And to the Jewish hearers who would have read um, David's psalm, the connection to hyssop would have been obvious. David is saying that he needs something to free him from sin's slavery, like slavery in Egypt. And he's saying that he needs something to heal him from sin's disease, like the disease of leprosy. And David is crying out to the only one who can do that. And that is why only Jesus can do these three things. Only Jesus can blot out guilt. See, David needed someone who could blot out all his guilt. And you and I need that as well. That someone is Jesus, the Passover lamb who died in our place so God's wrath could pass us by. Where we are in bondage to slavery, Jesus comes along and frees us. He blots out our guilt. But not only uh, that Jesus, only Jesus can cleanse our hearts. David needed someone to create in him a clean heart and you and I need that as well. And that someone is Jesus who came to cleanse our leprous souls, our disease-ridden souls from birth, it declares in Psalm 51. And Jesus can cleanse our leprous souls. Thirdly, only Jesus can renew our spirits. David needed someone to renew a right and steadfast spirit within him, and you and I need that as well. And that someone is Jesus who imparts his spirit to us as a sign of God's grace towards us. God's grace is so full. I want you to see 2 Samuel 7. This is before, obviously, 2 Samuel 11, where everything goes down with Bathsheba and Uriah. God declares to David, my steadfast love will not depart from him, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before me forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God knew what would happen in 2 Samuel 11 back in 2 Samuel 7. He knew what David would do, but he declared that his kingdom would not pass away, but would last forever, even at that point, because God also knew that at Christmas, he would be sending his son Jesus as the greater king who would be what would establish that throne forever. See, Christmas is the time that we stand in awe of God's love for us in sending his son, Jesus. Jesus really is the greater king and the greater savior. He came to do what even David, the greatest that Israel had to offer, could not do. 
We often think of David, right, as this kind of Christ figure, this, this shadow of the gospel in the Old Testament that Jesus would come and fulfill. That's very true, but not in this story. In this story, there's someone else who prefigures Jesus, and that somebody is Uriah. Here's why. Uriah did nothing in this story but be faithful and obedient. Like, that's all we see of Uriah. To the end, he is faithful at every turn. He is obedient at every turn. He even takes his own death sentence in his hands and brings it, and he dies for the sins of someone else. And David is there as someone who knows that someone needs to die, and he makes it somebody else. There's one key difference, though, in this story. And the key difference between Uriah and what Jesus has truly done for us is that Jesus comes along and doesn't have someone else die for his sins. He dies for our sins. And here's the key. Uriah, yes, was faithful and obedient every step of the way. But here's the thing. He had no idea what was happening to him. Not so with Jesus. When Jesus condescended from the heights of heaven at the right hand of the Father where he's been eternally and came to us at Christmas, he already knew every sin of David's. He already knew every sin of yours and every sin of mine. And he willingly, knowingly came, carried his own death sentence to the cross and died for you there. That is what Jesus has done. Matthew's genealogy at the beginning of his gospel tells us that David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. It was meant to draw our attention to the story of David and Bathsheba. David, yes, was the greatest king Israel had, and he was an adulterous murderer. And we need a savior greater than David, and God provided the king we need by sending his son, Jesus. And so at Christmas, what we celebrate is that God knowingly into the fray, into the mess, into the carnage, into the sin, into the family history, into the baggage, sent Jesus to come and to save. To quote one author, there is no one then, not even the greatest human being who does not need the grace of Jesus Christ. And there is no one, not even the worst human being, who can fail to receive the grace of Jesus Christ if there is repentance and faith. In Jesus Christ, prostitute and king, male and female, Jew and Gentile, one race and another race, moral and immoral, all sit down as equals. That's what Matthew's genealogy is telling us. Equals sinfully lost, equally sinful and lost, equally accepted and loved. The grace of God is so pervasive that even the begats, right? The King James begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so. The grace of God is so pervasive that even the begats of the Bible are dripping with God's mercy. Oh, how he loves you. And at Christmas, he came to prove it. From greatest king to most dreadful sinner, he came to save you. He came to save you. Listen, we're going to respond with a song, and um, it's our practice here to always make people available to pray with you. In James chapter 5, it talks about the power of a, a righteous person and the power of prayer and praying for each other, and we love to do that and offer that. So there will be 
people available to pray at the front and at the back and on the balcony. We just love doing that. We're available to you to pray about anything with you. We're also going to respond with singing. Let me close us in a word of prayer. God, thank you for sending your son, Jesus. God, I am also so thankful this morning as I'm so mindful of my own sin. I'm so thankful, Lord, that, that these stories that were meant to think back about as we read this genealogy of Jesus coming, they're so messy. Like They are so, so messy. Lord, it gives us hope. There is no one too lost. You love us. You came to save us. And we celebrate the fact that you came to us in your son Jesus at Christmas. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.